0: Welcome to Speaking Out. We're
1: mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about indigenous uh, constitutional recognition. Those two With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. How do you get a fair jury trial when three out of four of the witnesses have, have a negative bias against your client? It's likely to affect decisions made by police officers in regards to whether charges should be laid. And I've heard it many times, as the other lawyers on this panel will have, the times when police are called to an event and the black fella, the First Nations person, gets arrested because the white fella says they started it.
2: Australia's shame, how the justice system is failing First Nations people. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. In light of the Black Lives Matter movement in Australia, calls are growing for reforms to the justice sector to address the problems of systemic racism and unconscious bias. At the heart of the issue is a growing number of Aboriginal deaths in custody, as well as greater public scrutiny of police accountability, incarceration rates and the age of criminal responsibility. Earlier this month, the Victorian Department of Public Prosecutions revealed that no charges will be laid against two officers associated with the 2017 death in custody of Yorta Yorta woman, Tanya Day. That same day, the committal hearing of Constable Zach Rolfe began in the Alice Springs Local Court, charged with the shooting death of Kumonjai Walker last November. That case has prompted a call from community elders for a ban on police carrying guns into remote communities. And while these cases highlight the prevalence of overt racism in the justice system, justice systemic is the level of unconscious bias held by those charged with delivering justice at every point of the judicial process. A study released earlier this year found that nationally, three out of every four Australians hold an implicit negative bias against First Nations peoples. Tonight we pose the question, do these results extend to the justice sector and if so, what needs to be done to turn it around? You're about to hear from some of the country's leading legal and criminal justice experts as they explore the impact of racism and unconscious bias in the justice sector. Joining me in conversation this evening are Central Australian Aboriginal men's health expert, Alan Palmer. Barrister and Co-Senior Counsel Assisting the Royal Commission into the Protection and Detention of Children in the Northern Territory, Tony McAvoy, SC, and Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney, Thalia Anthony. To kick off the conversation, it's my pleasure to introduce Walprey Elder, Uncle Ned Jumper Jimper Hargraves. Uncle Ned is the Chair of the Walprey Justice Committee, and he's an interpreter who works with the courts. Uncle Ned, you've devoted many years to advocating tirelessly for justice for your people. Can you take us through some of your reflections on how the system is currently working? I think the first
3: thing that I need to talk about is uh, when they brought the intervention to us, um, we were flooded. With army, with the police and with those social career workers who actually came along and um, gave us what we needed to do. And watching the things happening, there were things happening, and every time we were tight, we were tight down because we could not move a muscle, we could not do a thing about all these things that, that the intervention brought to our attention. So really, to us, it was it was frightening for the whole community to have these Gauria, the army, the police, there at the same time. And also, they've also built $7 million police station. $7 million police station. That money could have gone to our community, our needs, to our children, to our programs that we needed so badly, so badly. And that $7 million was built for Garia. And what's for us what they've given us they've given us seven million dollars a police station, and that money it's not I think it's not well dressed to Korea to us especially and um, left us with emptiness and sadness and trauma and the second story that I like to tell is um, Kumya Walker he was a young fellow. he said he was 19 and um, why is it that 435? of our loved ones uh, being tortured or being shot or being treated really bad in policemen's custody. Why, why? 435 of our loved ones were either shot or treated really bad. And uh, in that same situation, there was a massacre in 1928 and um, they brought in a policeman, a soldier who was in the army Shooting people, that is the same thing that had happened here in Yundum. That's the same thing. Shooting our loved ones, our people. So we want justice. We want justice. We want justice now, right now. We want justice. And um, it leads to us terminated and also worried, thinking about what's next, who's going to be next. We as a community right across the Central Australia, as well as to the top end, Queensland, South Australia, we would like to say this. And I would like to say this on behalf of my community, as well as many other communities. We want to say, we want justice. We do not want guns to be worn in right across the Central Australia WA top end. We do not want guns. Because it terrifies us. Because we don't know who's coming around that corner. We don't know, and that's why we want justice, and we do not want guns to be worn. Thank you, everyone, and hope we, we as Yapa, you know, Korea's out there that she's listened to us.
2: Jumper I wonder if we could just ask you one question. Because I know when we spoke the other day, you're also very good at explaining how important it is for the community to take control of these justice issues. And I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about your views about how some of these issues around, you know, looking after the behaviour of young people needs to come back to the old people rather than be in the criminal justice system.
3: We always talk about young people and we talk to them and to be steady, 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 because of what is happening right now, you know, in central Australia now? It's ringing in the mall to our young people. We say to them, Look, be calm. the day that that young fellow was taken away. Everybody wanted to burn the police station, and we were we were, we were frightened ourselves because we were, we were, No, 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 that's not going to happen. Just become let it go. So, we're teaching our people, our young men and girls, to respect our culture and to respect. Country, even though they don't, you know, they don't do it the other way. But we do that because we feel that we don't want to be looked at. Yapa always are mad. You know, they're crazy. They don't listen. They want to wreck everything. No. That night was a very special night. Everybody was calm. They wanted to burn that station, police station. They wanted to burn it. But uh, some of our elders was there. Harry Nelson, Eddie Roberson and a few others were there. And uh, we, we told them, no, let it go. So we want to control our community. The intervention took our rights. left us empty because um, they think it's best that you give away your culture and you know, don't worry about it. No, that's not true. God has given us Chokorupa. When I say dreaming, our glory, he's given that to us. And we want to maintain it, not to lose it, but to keep it for our children's children. Keep it strong so that we can continue teaching, learning the country and the children. That's what we want to do. So we want our rights back. We want to be able to control our community in our way. Thank you, Nakamura.
2: Thank you so much. Jampa Jimpa, it's really important for us to hear from the community. And you've been such a wonderful spokesperson and, and trying mm. to thank you on behalf of all of us for sharing the wisdom with us and also you know what's happening there and i think it's a really good reminder of how you know when injustice happens in a community it it affects everyone and there's a lot of yeah. grief and healing yeah. and we appreciate you coming and speaking with us about thank it.
3: you for the opportunity
2: thank you okay. It's now my pleasure to introduce Alan Palmer, who represents four nations across Central Australia, including Arunda, Kaidich, Alura and Anmadjura. Alan has done some remarkable and consistent work at the coalface around empowering communities in the criminal justice space, particularly with youth and alternative sentencing. Alan, can you talk a bit about the work you've done around better ways that can be used for young men and boys when engaging with some of these issues?
4: Righto. Um, I'm just going to talk about my experience with the Northern Territory intervention. When it first came about, it created a lot of angst in the community. It created a lot of uh, frustration and fear, particularly with Aboriginal men, because if we remember, it attacked everything that is identifiable as an Aboriginal man, an Aboriginal man through law, um, an Aboriginal man through the culture, our society, our entire civilisation, our entire existence. And it seemed a bit like the authority was showing the dominance to reflect that other Aboriginals around Australia will see this and reflect on their own people to say, all right, here we are, going back down this road again of calling us savages, calling us what have you, just reiterating that stigma and stereotype of Aboriginal people, which goes against uh, all aspects of our society as Aboriginal people. I've had the privilege and have the privilege to see behind this curtain, so to speak, to see the beauty that is the fundamental basis of what gives us our societal structures as Aboriginal people, the oldest continuous living civilization on the face of the earth, the beauty that keeps us in line with our country and our family and our kinship, the inclusiveness of our society, the sharing which the intervention came and totally broke down. Um, It created new stereotypes. It disallowed uh, men in particular, in particular fathers, The way that they engage with their children, we're still seeing the effects of the intervention today. Some aspects of it, some people argue that they were good. So some people will argue that the intervention has done nothing but create further disadvantage for Aboriginal people, which I would have to agree. There was a point in time here in Central Australia where Aboriginal children were seen as an accessory to white people. They were adopting Aboriginal people because of the monetary incentives and and what have you. There was talk around like an Aboriginal child that's walking with a white person was the new Gucci or the new Prada, so to speak. And we've seen all of this take place and and play out. And even today, you could drive down through the centre of town and see mobs of kids, I think, as young as five. And the blame is always back on the parent or the parents. And that's, that's something that's debilitated. Parents is plural. There's a mother and a father. And as much as we should protect and save our women and children we should be thinking of families and empowering families. Other things that have come out of the intervention are laws and powers that are given to police, which contributes to the overrepresentation within our prison systems. The sad thing that happened in Yindamu, I could say, was a part of the intervention because where it was, the police officer did not need a warrant to enter the dwelling. Mm. There are laws in Central Australia where there are armed auxiliary police officers that stand and man bottle shops. For what reason? I'm not sure. Why do they need to be armed? I had a run-in at at one of the bottle shops. I went to the police station just to see what was an appropriate question to be asked whilst purchasing um, a legal substance in the country that we live in. To the response of the officer behind the counter, he said, well, as part of the investigation, it is up to the officer's discretion to ask questions to see if there is a crime that is about to be committed or has been committed." So. A prescribed area in the Northern Territory is anything that's attached to Aboriginal land that has the title Aboriginal to it, which people aren't allowed to buy alcohol if you come from a prescribed area. But if you're a person of colour, then it's up to the armed police auxiliary officer to determine if you're going to be interrogated there on the spot, which seems a little bit biased in itself because you could be someone who's behind a car that's um, of non Indigenous people that seem to go through with no, no, no hassle or no drama. To when you approach the questions are a little bit more intimate. The intervention has, has given powers to the authority that has disempowered us as people. Aboriginal men through our system, it is a man's responsibility to take care of the law, the culture, the country and the family. We have an obligation to fulfil for our families. By them attacking Aboriginal men, it has created the disconnect. And because there's a disconnect, we, ha- we now have a generation of youths that are disconnected from their country, their law and their families, because a child can turn to their parent or their guardian and say, if you discipline me, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to welfare, which creates what? It creates confusion and frustration within the person, within the parent. Hands are tied. Yeah, I think we'll go to the question.
2: <laughs> I mean, there's so much in what you say and and I think it's it's really powerful to hear how something that was brought in 10 years ago, still has so much, well, more than 10 years ago now, is still having these ramifications. There, are so much in what you said that we could ask you more about. But I guess a couple of the things that I wondered if you'd like to speak about, one is you talked about that negative stigma on men. Men felt that Aboriginal men felt they were being surveilled, they were being judged. And I wondered if you could talk about the really important work that people like yourself in the community are doing to build up confidence in particularly younger men, because yeah. as I said, that's a real issue. Um, I think it'd be really great to hear how the community is yeah. taking back control of that.
4: Yeah. So there are two outcomes that came about, right? One followed status quo. We need to stop violence, stop the violence, stop the violence, right? And the other went behind the scenes and thought, well, how can we re-engage and re-establish the roles and responsibilities, the obligations that men have? We have to start with the young people. So we've developed programs over, uh, over time. One of the programs that I've developed um, in partnership with an organisation, we called it Kaga which translates to Big Brother's Place. It's a big brother's responsibility to guide and nurture a younger brother. Now, in our, in our society, an older brother isn't necessarily your oldest biological brother. He is also your paternal grandfather. So your paternal grandfather also fills the role, not only as your grandfather, but also a leader and a teacher and a nurturer of you. This is why we've chosen that name. Um, and through that, it's to build on the, on the identity of being an Aboriginal man. What does it mean? What does it mean to be a man? There's not much difference between the two. It's the word. So to be a man in, in a modern day society or to be a father or a parent, it's to get an education, to have an education, to grow, to be able to function in society, to generate an income, to be able to provide shelter, food, protection for the family or for yourself. It's the same in our system, the same things. There's only one, one difference, and that fundamental difference is money. We have a different value system. We hold different aspects of this world at different levels of value. Knowledge is one of them, and responsibility is another one. And one that we need to work on and that we do work on is the identity and the empowerment of what it is to be an Aboriginal man, the responsibility as that, because not only do we have a responsibility to ourselves, to our younger siblings, to the society or the community that we come from, we have a responsibility to the world to showcase the world's oldest continuous living civilization on the face of the earth. We predate every other civilization and we're still
2: here. I just wondered if there was just one last question that sort of goes to the importance of bringing these issues back to the community. And you made the really good point before that one of the long lasting legacies of the intervention in And and as you say, there were so many bad things about it, but that undermining of the authority and power of communities to look after themselves as part of the intervention and to disempower people on the ground. What would you like to see happen? How can we rebuild and give back that power to communities? What are some of the things that you think we could be looking at doing there?
4: Forums such as this, it's the balance of sharing. The people of the Southern dialects, they call it ngabity-ngabity. It's a part of our system. It's coming together and and, and and we prefer it's something that's embedded within our ceremonial structure. It's the coming together of different nations to sit down and have dialogue, to share, because the more you know, the more information that other people know, they have a responsibility to act on that information. They cannot sit down in the space of deniability. It's a comfortable space. It's the comfortability of deniability to say, well, I didn't know. But if we sit down in forums such as this to share and to listen, now we know, so now we have to do something. It's as simple as sitting down next to, um, you know, at the next uh, coffee break and having dialogue and correcting someone who's articulating it wrong. And for that, we protect ourselves as Aboriginal people and we protect our heritage. We should not be living life to aspire to things at the expense of our heritage. There was one thing that Warangi Mr Janba Ginba said one time when I was at Yindamu. It stuck with me and it's, it's when you're in the system before confronting the judge... When you have to sign a statement, there's a bunch of words. And, and he said it so cleverly. He said, would you sit down and sign this piece of paper if it was written in Walgreens? Would you put your name to it? And we as Aboriginal people put our names to documents on a daily basis.
2: Thanks, Alan. That's Alan Palmer, a Central Australian Aboriginal men's health expert and facilitator of the program Strong Young Men and Boys.
5: You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio.
2: This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Tonight, we're taking an in-depth look at the contributing factors behind the disproportionate rates in which Indigenous Australians continue to come into contact with the criminal justice system. Earlier this year, data revealed by Harvard, Yale, and the University of Sydney through an implicit association test revealed three in four people held a negative bias against Indigenous Australians. So, with that in mind, what impact could an unconscious racial bias have on the way Indigenous people are treated by the criminal justice system? We'll take a closer look shortly, but right now, some music from Cairns based rock band The Medics. This next track. Track is taken from their 2012 album Foundations and is called Finnegan. the medics with their song Finnegan. Let's return now to our conversation exploring the relationship between First Nations people and the justice system. It's been four years since an ABC Four Corners program exposed shocking mistreatment of inmates at the Dondale Youth Detention Centre in the Northern Territory. Subsequently, the Royal Commission into the Protection and Detention of Children in the Northern Territory was established, with its findings handed down in November 2017. Most notably, the Commission's report highlighted shocking and systemic failures in the youth prison system, which were ignored by the highest levels of government. Tony McAvoy Senior Counsel, is a leading native title barrister and served as co-senior counsel to the Dondale Investigation. Tony, maybe you could share your reflections on the significance of the Royal Commission and the processes it employed.
1: The time that I spent on the uh, Northern Territory Dondale Royal Commission was twelve months, but it was uh, it was it felt like it was years. The work was so intense and so personally and emotionally draining. i don't want to comment anymore on on the internals of the Royal Commission. I, what I want to say though is that what we saw in the Northern Territory during the course of that Royal Commission was a deeply, deeply entrenched level of racism that permeated through all levels of government and the media. But the Northern Territory economy relies on First Nations people being sick, and being incarcerated and communities being dysfunctional. I got the impression very strongly that the bureaucracy did not want to see those problems that heartache and pain in those communities remedied because that would mean that they were without that income and revenue and those jobs. They live off our illness. One third of the Northern Territory revenue comes from the federal government. And so we had the possibility of analysing the youth detention and child protection systems over a period of 12 months and did get the opportunity to expose some of that racism but, in that short period, I don't think we could have gotten to and and we didn't get to the heart of or deconstruct those systems that have been decades and generations in the making. What we saw in the Royal Commission is a result of a treatment of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory for a long period of time that regarded. Aboriginal people as people who could be told what to do and people who could be locked up and people who could be deprived of their rights. So even if we could expose and deconstruct all of those things in the Royal Commission, the system that is built up around that level of systemic and deeply institutionalised racism has its own inbuilt defence mechanisms to outside criticism such as that that we might make from a a Royal Commission. One of the common retorts that I heard in the Northern Territory directed at myself and other lawyers who had come from different parts of Australia to try and bring some objectivity to what was happening in the Northern Territory was that Southerners didn't know the reality of the Northern Territory. Or just as common, this is how we do things in the NT to justify discriminatory behavior and treatment. And so it is that the bureaucracy and the wheels of government and the economic systems all rely upon the oppression of the Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory for their existence. And it is very difficult to break that down and to change it, but we must, we must for all of our brothers and sisters in the Northern Territory, we must continue to challenge it and seek to break it down. The reality, though, uh, is that many people outside of the Northern Territory like to think of the racism there as unacceptable. But that same systemic racism and institutionalised racism exists throughout the rest of the country. It is simply writ large in the Northern Territory because First Nations people make up a third of the population and it comes out. On the big screen, so to speak, so it's impossible to miss. But in the southern states, where Aboriginal people make up three percent of the population, it's just not in everybody's face every day. So people from the other states have no reason to be smug or look down upon Northern Territorians, in my view. One um, recent confirmation of that view is is the report that was released by uh, Mr. Sharodka from the ANU on implicit and unconscious bias. And that report um, released in June, I believe, found after 11,000 tests were undertaken, so a very good sample, that three out of four Australian people have an implicit or unconscious negative bias against First Australians. And that report received coverage for a day in the media and then slipped out of everybody's consciousness. But for people like me who work in the justice system and see it played out every day, that figure stuck with me. That figure is something that one sees very strongly played out in the Northern Territory.
2: On that point about that report, how should those findings be understood more broadly in the justice sector?
1: Well, as soon as I heard that report, I thought, Should those figures be applied to the justice sector? Is there any reason why we should not accept that three out of four people involved in the justice sector uh, have a negative, implicit, or unconscious bias against Aboriginal people? And I couldn't see any reason why not. Three out of four judges in the justice system will have that negative bias. If that's the case, how do we guarantee that First Nations people ever get a fair trial? You see, If you dig down a little, you might think that unconscious or implicit bias is likely to affect things such as the weight that a judge will give to the evidence of a white person as opposed to contradictory evidence from a First Nations person, or whether the judge accepts the evidence of an offender that he or she feels remorse about their activity and they should be given leniency on the basis of that remorse or whether they're likely to re-offend and whether they're suitable to be granted bail or in relation to the circumstances around the offence. This unconscious and implicit bias at that really high level of three out of four people, I think, on its face, would appear to have a very dramatic effect on the administration of justice. It's likely to affect, for instance, the assessments of witnesses made by juries. How do you get a fair jury trial when three out of four of the witnesses have have a negative bias against your client. It's likely to affect decisions made by police officers in regards to whether charges should be laid. And I've heard it many times as other lawyers on this panel will have, the times when police are called to an event and the black fella, the First Nations person gets arrested because the white fella says they started it. And the police disregard the view of the Aboriginal person. It's likely to affect whether somebody is warned and sent home. And so we see from a report that came out of Western Australia earlier this year in relation to, it's a minor thing, but it was in relation to police issuing fines for traffic offences, for speeding. And it was found in this report that where the speeding was as a result of a camera so that there was no human intervention, Aboriginal people in Western Australia had a lower rate of fine than the rest of the community. But where that speeding ticket was issued by an officer, they were 3.9 times more likely to be given a ticket. And that figure, it seems to me, reverberates through the whole of the justice system. And so, How can we expect that police will exercise all of their various discretions in a manner that is unbiased against uh, First Nations people? How do we know that they're not going to make a decision to search somebody's car or bag because of bias, or whether they should conduct a strip search or a body cavity search? We heard the Attorney General in Western Australia just uh, a few weeks ago talking about a mother who presented herself at a police station because she was in hospital at the time when she should have been a witness in a domestic violence matter, and the prosecutor asked for a warrant to be issued against her. When she turned up at the police station, they arrested her, and then they cavity searched her, and they held her overnight. The Attorney General in Western Australia said this would not have happened to a white mother from Cottesloe, but it happened in Western Australia to an Aboriginal woman, And, and that's consistent with a bias against Aboriginal people. So it's likely, it seems to me, that those biases also affect the decisions of corrections officers and parole officers and child welfare officers. So the question I I ask myself, because I sit on all of these committees internally in the justice system, trying to figure out how to make the system fairer for my people. And I ask myself, what must the justice sector do about it? Does it engage in a process of self-awareness and find the mechanism to deliver some structural and cultural change to ensure that the biases are known, they actually know how much these biases are affecting the delivery of justice, and then they do things to remediate and ameliorate those biases. Or does it say, like um, we heard the Minister for Police in New South Wales say a few weeks ago about the officer that face slammed, body slammed the, the young man into the pavement and put him in the hospital, that, oh, well, the officer would think that he had a bad day in in the office. So the question for the justice sector, it seems to me, is does it ignore it? Does it ignore this latest report and hope that we will go away? Or does it grasp the nettle and confront and look at itself in the mirror as it's doing in respect of sexual harassment at this very point in time? So they're my observations about that report. And I think that we need to hold on to that report and we need to put it in people's faces, in the justice sector's faces and say, you need to confront this. You need to think about what this means for the way in which you deliver justice and you need to make some changes. I've got to say this and it's, it's my own observation that at its very heart, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island Destined Custody Report from 1991 was pleading for cultural change in the systems that affect Aboriginal people in the justice sector. It had Aboriginal justice uh, advisory committees established It talked about cultural awareness training and that report failed to bring about the change that we need. And that was not for want of trying. There were so many people involved, yet the systems were so entrenched that we couldn't shift them. And, and here we are again, 30 years later, saying, you've got to do it this time. You've got to make the change. Well, that's my view on it anyway, Larissa.
2: Thanks, Tony, for your insights and expertise. Before we wrap things up this evening, I'd like to bring in Thalia Anthony. Thalia is a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney. Thalia, I was hoping you could talk about what has happened since the Royal Commission. Have practices improved and are we seeing a decrease in detention levels?
6: So, it's now been four years since Four Corners aired the shocking footage of you know, Dylan Boller in the first instance being strapped to a restraint chair and and hooded, and there was a national outcry and many recommendations flowed from this Royal Commission. What we've seen now, almost three years since the Commission concluded, is a real departure and I would say backlash on the part of the Northern Territory Government. Rather than respond in a way that gives attention to the need for self-determination, that tries to redress racism, it's gone ahead with its punitive policies. So one of the things I found really interesting last year, which really went under the radar, in 2019 there were a suite of amendments passed for the Youth Justice Act and they gave greater powers to the superintendent and authorised officers to restrain children, to strip search children, to segregate children and to use force. Prior to the amendments, it had to be an emergency situation. After these amendments, there's much greater scope for officers to do this and this totally flies in the face of any recommendation of the Royal Commission. We've also seen the use of tear gas about a year or so ago, that again was contrary to the Royal Commission's recommendation. We've seen young girls being strip searched, surveillance in showers. So all the things that were supposed to be addressed have been not only a failure, but I would say a betrayal to those people who came to the Royal Commission to share their stories. And so it's been up to the young people to take their case recently to the High Court to try and bring claims against the tear gassing and have been successful. But this has been, as Larissa said, such a long struggle and such hard work in trying to push for justice um, and and their claims are still ongoing. Um, So today about two-thirds of the recommendations of the Royal Commission still have not been implemented Dondale is still open and operating and there have been ongoing issues with um, not raising the age. But, but I just wanted to, I actually just wanted to end it there and, and say that we've still got so much work to do before we can see anything, any real strengths flowing from the Royal Commission. In the Northern Territory, we've got a real deep-seated racism And this is traced to the historical policies of Aboriginal protectionism. It's traced to the practices of slavery, assimilation, massacres in the Northern Territory, types of things that Jumper Jumper spoke about tonight. But it also manifests today. These aren't historical things. When we look at the intervention, it also disempowers. It denies self-determination over the communities, over over Aboriginal people's lives and cultures. And what we heard in the Royal Commission, and this includes from Aboriginal people like Pat Anderson, Muriel Bamblett, also Larissa, talk about how when you have racism through a policy like the intervention, it plays out in detention centres. It plays out in how the police treat young people. And the only response, and Harry Nelson from Ewan spoke about this as well, the only response is to shift the power back to the communities. And he spoke about a lot of the really good work the youth programs were doing in you and Demu, but they weren't getting the support that they needed to help their children. All the resources were going to, to government and the police. There were also calls, I think, as part of the campaigning around the Royal Commission, that children should be on country, not in custody, and that there should be kids kept in family and culture, not taken by child protection, and that there needed to be people held to account for the abuses. But we haven't seen this, and we haven't seen a shift in the policy away from the intervention. And so this year, when there's been so much focus on Black Lives Matter, it is about people who are harmed by police. It is about all those kids who came before the intervention and said things like the fact that there were guards who pushed on them and they were screaming, I can't breathe. They said things like they were being forcibly strip-searched young women by male guards. But it's more than what happens in the criminal justice system. In some ways, this is the tip of the iceberg. It's what happens in the community every day, that racism that means that children are taken away and can't be brought up by their families and by their cultures. And, you know, Tony gave a really, I think, compelling explanation of how unconscious and implicit racism When it operates on that level, no section of society is immune. But I think the real tragedy of the situation in the Northern Territory is that many of these kids are taken away and they can't be brought up in language, in culture, to know their skin groups and to pass this on to the next generation. And I think that we need to remember that, you know, the Northern Territory shows how racism is not only unconscious, it's also very explicit. The Racial Discrimination Act was suspended to allow the intervention. In this country today, we continue to have this intervention and it simply has to stop if we're going to stop what happens in detention, but also what what happens in communities and in families. And so, Unfortunately, the Royal Commission, while I think it did bring together many um, people to tell their stories, it didn't have the necessary impact to really make a change, not yet. And so we need to keep telling these stories before we see change.
2: Thanks, Thalia. That's Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney, Thalia Anthony. You've also heard from Chair of the WALPRE Justice Committee, Ned Jimpa Hargraves, Aboriginal men's health expert, Alan Palmer, and leading native title barrister, Tony McAvoy, SC. To take us out tonight, we'll leave you with some music from Mao Power and Uncle Archie Roach. Released in 2014, Freedom is a protest song which invites us all to move towards a more unified future. she is the show for this week. Join us again next week when we explore the issues facing the queer First Nations community and how it can move beyond acceptance into a space of belonging.
7: The challenges that face particular parts of our community are complex but workplaces can respond to that by just fundamental good sense around what respect looks like and what fairness and equity look like and That's both in the creation of physical spaces within the workplace and it starts absolutely at the top of the organisation. This is not an HR function in an institution. If the organisation has a board, it starts with the board. This kind of culture belongs with the board, down through the leaders of the organisation to all staff. You know, if you've got a a board full of racist homophobes, the organisation's got no chance and those boards still exist. I've experienced them time and time again and I know others have too. So it takes work and it takes... I guess the development of some healthy habits around respect and culture of recognizing how diversity of experiences inform what safety looks like. And of course, the best inclusion policies come uh, in those places where the approach to inclusion is informed by those people who are most likely to be isolated in an organization that isn't genuinely inclusive. And the best inclusion comes when it matches the culture of the organization. So I would imagine a preschool might have a different set of practices around as opposed to what a football club might have, for example. So there is no one-size-fits-all approach to inclusion. It's very much around leadership, constant dedication to the habits of inclusion to the point where they stop being practised and are just part of the business as usual. And a, a clear understanding of the organisation's approach to when inclusion's not working and how particular measures of safety can be built around those who need it most in the moments when inclusion fails.
2: Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.